Well, we're in 1 John 4, chapter, or chapter 4, verses 7 through 21, and I just wanted to um, remind us of the overall structure of 1 John. Ryan's been doing a good job of that, um, but I, I just wanted to look at it again. We had the prologue in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, where John gives his eyewitness credentials. He says, we're testifying to the stuff we actually saw. And then in chapter 1, verses 5 through chapter 2, verse 27, we saw that God is light. This is kind of a metaphor. Um, and then in chapter 2, verse 28 through 4, 6, we saw that God is righteous. That is a very real reality um, of, of God's righteous character. And now in, in chapter 4, verse 7, we see that God is love. And all of these is to give us assurance of our eternal life. Because God is light, those who walk in the light can know that we are children of God. Because God is righteous, those who pursue righteousness can know that they are children of God. And now because God is love, those who love one another, can be sure, can have assurance that we are children of God. So our passage today is John chapter, 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 21, and it is God's love perfected in us. We're moving to a new section of John's letter, but it's still a part of the letter, and we're going to see how John takes concepts from the previous sections and fleshes them out here as a sort of ramp up to the climax of the letter. We're going to be hopping around the letter quite a bit. So get your fingers ready. I've titled the sermon, God's Love Perfected in Us, because that's the central theme of the entire passage. But you may be wondering what exactly that means. What does it mean for God's love to be perfected? This doesn't mean that God's love in himself was imperfect and needed to, to become perfect. God's love in himself is perfect. We're going to lay this out more clearly as we work through the passage, but for now I'll tell you that the word perfected simply means completed because there was something incomplete in us that God's love completed. So before we jump into the passage, I want to pray and ask God's blessing on our time today. Father, open our hearts to receive your word. You promised that you would remove our stony hearts and replace them with hearts of flesh, Amen. and that you would put your spirit within us. Please use your word now to draw us closer to you and stir up within us a love for you and each other based on your love displayed in the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's read our passage and then we'll unpack it. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 21. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. 
In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected within us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So we're going to see three ways that God's love is perfected in us and two proofs of that reality. First, we're going to look at the three ways that God's love is perfected in us in verses 7 through 12, and then we'll look at the two proofs of that reality in verses 13 to 21. The first way that God's love is perfected in us is by our spiritual birth. We see this in verses 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Now in English, this looks like a command. Beloved, thou shalt love one another. But the Greek, is, the Greek rendered let us love one another is what's called a subjunctive. It's a big word. It indicates a potential reality, like the if-then statements we've seen all throughout 1 John. Now, rather than a command, this has more of an ought-to or should feel to it, because the command has already been given. John recorded Jesus' command for us to love one another in John 13, 34. He said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And John rearticulated this command earlier in 1 John. 1 John 3.11 said, For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We clearly have this command to love each other, but the focus here in 1 John 4.7 is more on the reason rather than the action. The reason we love each other is because love is from God, and so are we. We're born of God. Jesus talked about the importance of our spiritual birth to Nicodemus in John 3, 3 that, we, that Ryan read. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus didn't get it. So Jesus explained in verses 5 and 6, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of 
water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Now, when Jesus said that you must be born of water and the spirit, he was referring to the new covenant from Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. Ezekiel says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. All true believers under the new covenant have this spiritual birth being cleansed from sin and having the spirit within us, causing us to want to pursue righteousness. This is just like what we saw back in 1 John 2, 29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Children have certain inherited characteristics from their parents. Some of these characteristics are physical. I mean, you just look at my son, Caden, and just know that he's my son, right? Some are internal, affecting personality, temperament, sometimes likes and dislikes. Because we're spiritually born of God, we take on these characteristics from our Heavenly Father. We desire and pursue righteousness, and we love each other. Back in our passage, John also says that whoever loves one another knows God. And he goes on to explain the, re- the, uh, the reason by arguing against the contrary in verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. God is love. You cannot separate God from love. If you truly know God, then you cannot look at the world and the evil in the world and conclude that God hates his creation. If you truly know God, then you cannot look at your own difficulties and think, God must not love me. Those thoughts are from the devil. They blind people to the reality of God's love. If you're thinking those, those thoughts, look to scripture, because it is so clear in scripture that God loves, God is love. God's very identity is love. Now, I don't mean that our ideas of what love is defines who God is. God is beyond the confines of our thinking, and so our ideas of love are just a shadow compared to the reality of love that God is. We cannot define God by our idea of love We must define love by who God has revealed himself to be in his word. And the specific message in his word that displays his love the fullest is the gospel. First way we saw that God's love is perfected in us is through our spiritual birth. The second way that God's love is perfected in us is through our understanding of the gospel. We see this in verses 9 through 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, 
not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. John said this earlier in the letter, in 1 John 3, 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. The greatest act of love of all time in the entire universe is the gospel. God sent his only son into the world to die and rise again so that we could have eternal life with him. The length of God's love is measured by the infinite height of his holiness, the infinite depth of our depravity, and the measureless sacrifice of pouring out his wrath on his own son instead of us, and the measureless worth of our salvation and all that entails. God's love spanned that doubly infinite gap to give us a priceless gift by paying an infinitely worthy price. There is no greater love John 3.16 articulates it so well that men, many of us have it memorized. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Are you captivated by God's love? God's love is perfected in us by our understanding the breadth and length and height and depth of his love. This is what Paul prayed for the church in Ephesus in Ephesians 3, 18 and 19, praying that they may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Jesus took our sin and bore his Father's wrath out of love for his father and a desire to glorify his father, but he also did it because he shares the father's infinite love for us. Amen. And John's argument here in our passage is that we cannot measure our understanding of love on how much we love God because our love is fickle due to sin, due to our frailty, and sometimes due to the devil's blinding and deceptive influence on our thinking. Our concept of love must be rooted in the gospel. And we must keep the gospel at the front of our minds to keep our thinking from being distorted. When we understand more and more the extent of God's love for us in the gospel, it should compel us to love each other in like manner, sacrificially. We saw that the first way God's love is perfected in us is in our spiritual birth. The second way God's love is perfected in us is in our understanding of the gospel. And now the third way that God's love is perfected in us is in our loving sacrifice. We see this in verses 11 and 12. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. When it says, if God so loved us, it's not talking about the immensity 
He loved us so much, right? No. If God loved us in this manner, that's what the so means. Beloved, if God loved us in that way, we should also love in that way, sacrificially. Here we see clearly the ought to or the should aspect of our love for one another. The gospel should compel us to love each other. Jesus also gave his disciples an example of sacrificial love when he washed their feet. In John 13, 14, and 15, he says, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. This was an amazing example of serving one another in love. And Jesus uses it as an example of how we are to lovingly serve one another. But John's argument in our passage in 1 John is that the motivation should be more than just being like Jesus. The motivation for sacrificial love is having the greatest act of sacrificial love done to you, done for you. So you go and do likewise. We sacrificially love not because Jesus washed a few smelly feet, but because he died in our place so that we could live forever with him. Amen. Now in verse 12 of our passage, he says that no one has ever seen God. He, John said the exact same thing in, in his gospel. In John 1.18, he says, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. The point in that verse is that Jesus is God in bodily, visible form, displaying the Father, who is not physical, but spiritual. And the point in our passage in 1 John is that it's difficult to show our love to God whom we've never seen. But if we sacrificially love one another, then God abides in us, and our love for one another is love for Him. When we speak the gospel to each other, we are compelled to love God. And the way we can show that the best is in sacrificially loving each other as God has sacrificially loved us. Speak God's love to each other. Be stirred to love God because of his love. Act on that stirring by loving each other, thus reminding each other of God's love. You see how we went for full circle? This is a divine love cycle that keeps going and going like the Energizer Bunny, never running out of power because the infinite love of God is its power source. I think this love cycle is what John is referring to when he talks of God's love being perfected or completed in us. Without the gospel, the cycle of love is cut because we love for selfish reasons, or our understanding of love fluctuates so much that love becomes lopsided. We may love, but in expectation of being loved in return. And if we are not loved in return, we take back our love, withhold our love until we feel we've been loved sufficiently to warrant our love again. This is broken love, an unperfected love, an incomplete love. It's a love that fails, but God's love never fails. 
If our love for each other is rooted in God's love for us rather than our desire to be loved by others, then the cycle is complete. Even if those we love do not love us back, the gospel is evident, and it's the gospel that compels us to love even more. We saw three ways that God's love is perfected in us, in our spiritual birth, in our understanding of the gospel, and in our sacrificial love for each other. Now we're going to look at the two proofs that God's love has been perfected in us. How do you know? How do you know that God's love has been perfected in you? How do you know that you aren't fooling yourself? This is the theme of the entire letter, assurance. How do you know? We're dealing with assurance of experience, not assurance of truth claims. We can know the truth because God has told us in his word. But here, God, through the Apostle John, gives us some practical ways or tests by which we can know that we have actually experienced the reality of God's love in our lives. The first proof that God's love has been perfected in us is that we are abiding in the love of God. We see this in verses 13 through 16. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Here we see very similar language of the Spirit giving assurance that we are abiding in God and God abiding in us, like we saw in 1 John 3.24. He says, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. We have the spirit living inside of us. And he bears witness to our souls that we are abiding in God and God is abiding in us. The Holy Spirit makes it clear to us that we are in communion with God by stirring up family affections within us. He makes the truth of the gospel glorious to our hearts. Without the Spirit, the gospel is just a list of facts that you may accept as true or not. There are people out there, maybe even in this room right now, who agree to the truth of the gospel, but to them, the gospel is just facts. It's not personal. The Spirit applies the gospel to your emotions and stirs up love within you over the glorious truth of the gospel. That is the proof of abiding in God's love. Now in verse 14 of our passage, John says that he has seen and has testified to the facts of the gospel, that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. This is assurance of the truth claim that Jesus is the Son of God. John is an eyewitness, as he claimed at the very beginning of the letter. 
And then in verse 15, he says that if you confess that Jesus is the Son of God, then God abides in you and you abide in God. This is not just mental assent to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, it's confession. This is devotion, allegiance. This is also the other half of what Ryan was talking about last week. In verses 2 and 3 of 1 John 4, he said, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. That's talking about Jesus' humanity. Our passage right here is talking about Jesus' divinity. The indwelling Holy Spirit confesses both Jesus' humanity and his deity. And anyone who denies either of those realities does not have the Spirit. He will not be abiding in God's love. He will not have God's love perfected in him since he's not been born of God, he does not rightly understand the gospel, and he does not sacrificially love. Without the Spirit, we cannot have God's love and the love cycle is broken. So the Spirit is the proof of the completed or perfected love cycle as he gives us assurance in verse 16, which is reminiscent of the high priestly prayer. In John 17, 20 to 23, Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Our unity as brothers and sisters in Christ is based on love, God's love for us, realized within us and poured out on each other Starting the cycle over again. So the first proof of God's love having been perfected in us is that we're abiding in the love of God. And the second proof is that we're being transformed by the love of God. We see this in verses 17 to 21. By this is love perfected within us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has, has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Verse 17 speaks of confidence, and it looks very much like 1 John 2, 28 and 29, which says, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. 
If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. God's love, perfected, completed in us, gives us confidence for the day of judgment. This love cycle is God's means of our sanctification. We become more like Christ when we sacrificially love one another out of our love for God, stirred up by our understanding of the gospel. This is what Paul spoke about in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. When we behold the glory of the Lord in the gospel, we are transformed into that same likeness as we love one another more and more. This transformation that happens in the perfected love cycle gives us confidence in the day of judgment because we're like Christ. When we stand before him, we will not fear punishment because we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that our sins have been forgiven and that God loves us because we have been steeped in the gospel and this love is perpetuated in the love cycle. This is what verse 18 of our passage is referring to. Perfected or perfect love is the perfected or completed love cycle that we've been talking about which casts out fear like being spun too fast on a merry-go-round. The fear John refers to is specifically fear of punishment at the day of judgment, not any other fear. But as we love more and more, the things that we would fear in this life tend to melt away. Our perspective shifts. Pain and suffering in this life isn't quite so frightening anymore. Our sanctification comes as a result of this love cycle. So when we love more and more like Jesus, it is proof that God's love is perfected in us. And it gives us confidence and casts out any fear of punishment on the day of judgment. Now verses 19 to 21, John gives another articulation of the motive and rationale for the perfected love cycle. Succinctly put, we love each other because God first loved us. We love each other because it makes sense. And we love each other because he told us to. The love cycle does not begin with our love. It begins with God's love. It begins with the gospel. The gospel compels us to love God by loving each other because we can actually see and tangibly love one another. Loving God without loving others is impossible because you cannot truly and sacrificially love someone you cannot see. A love that does not act in physical reality is not really love, but a fabricated feeling. Verse 20 says that logically, to love God is to love one another. It makes sense. Verse 21 says that even greater than the logical deduction of loving God through loving one another is the command directly from God. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. So let's recap. 
God's love is perfected in us by virtue of our spiritual birth, through our understanding of God's love in the gospel, and as the missing piece of our love which completes the cycle so that we perpetually love by being reminded of God's love. And the proof that this completed love cycle is in fact occurring is that we're abiding in God's love and we're being transformed to love and look more like Jesus. It's my prayer that you would know God's love in the gospel more and more and that you would desire to love God because of his great love for you and to show that love by loving each other. Let's keep the cycle going. In fact, let's bring as many people into the cycle as we can because God's love is too great to keep it to yourself. God's love is too great for just Trinity Benicia. God's love is too great for just California. God's love is too great for the United States. God's love is too great for just Israel because God is the God of the whole world. Don't stop at just loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. Love everyone with the sacrificial love of God in the gospel and perhaps the Father will add the unbelievers you love to his family. Let's pray. Father, we're dumbfounded at the reality of your love. It's beyond anything we could ever even imagine. You are infinitely holy and righteous and just, and our sin deserved your full wrath. But you loved us so much that you redirected your wrath to your own son so that we could not only be saved from your wrath and the effects of sin, but we would also be adopted into your family to live with you forever. All oh, this is just a taste of the infinite overflowing love that you have had for your son and your spirit from eternity past to eternity future, and we get to bask in that love with you, worshiping you forever. Father, it's beyond words. I pray that my brothers and sisters here would join me in loving each other because we have tasted of your love rather than attempting to love out of obligation or duty. I pray that our acts of sacrificial love would be a pleasing aroma to you, that we would understand your gospel more and more because of our love for each other. I pray that you would grant us unity with each other as we are united to your Son. When we stumble in sin, I pray that you would compel us to confess and seek forgiveness. And I pray that when we are sinned against, that we would remember your great love in forgiving us so that we would rely on that for our strength to forgive others. Father, it's so easy to forget the gospel when other things crowd into our lives. 
our busy schedules, our health, our studies at school, our future plans, raising children, or raising grandchildren, regular cares of life like food and clothing. Help us to remember your loving care for us. Help us to not be distracted or tempted by the things of the world to forget your great love for us. Father, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.